down the road, you'd be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than the ones you did. So dream, explore, say yes to life. Be inspired to live life as an exciting adventure of discovery. You are listening to the Inspire Possibility Show, and I'm your host, Mark Sussman. Hey, everybody. Welcome. This is Mark Susnell, and thanks for tuning in to the Inspire Possibility Show, the show that hopefully will inspire you to think about possibilities in your life that perhaps you haven't thought about or maybe you did think about and you haven't done anything about it. But every week I invite various individuals that are I consider cutting-edge thought leaders, people who who have a strong opinion and strong expertise about a particular subject. And what's a word that's always kind of intrigued me is the word sin. And uh, everybody has, you know, their own idea of what it means. Some people, you know, they're raised in a strict religious setting and they got a strong belief about that. Other people believe that there's no such thing. But I did get an email from a publicist that I work with, and she sent me information about about David A. Solomon. He's the author of The Seven Deadly Sins, and I'm going, wow, this is kind of a intriguing topic, and I wanted to find out more about it. And and uh, he's actually David is is the director of undergraduate research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University. In, and that's in Virginia. He's been a professor of English for almost 20 years, and he's published other works. And and he, in his book, he talks about the origin of sin and how it's evolved in, into contemporary society. So, David Solomon, welcome to the Inspire Possibility Show. I'm intrigued by what you're about to say. Well, thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me on. It's my pleasure. So, so um, when did, when so you just wrote this book, Seven Deadly Sins? I did. I wrote it in the well. Now it's a little bit more than. So I finished it in September. I wrote it last year. Right. Uh huh. And and so what I what I'm curious about is, is I always um, I'm always curious about why people do certain things, especially a, an author, because I'm an author myself, and sure, you know what what motivate somebody you know to get into a topic and really explore it and and I know in in your your book uh sounded like you did a lot of research and a lot of Absolutely. historical research going back to the middle you know middle ages and medieval times and I'm just wondering uh why yeah well i mean i i I've always worked in the area of uh religion and literature mostly in the Middle Ages and Renaissance. That's where my training is. And uh, my past work and, and most of my scholarship deals with that issue in some way. I, I, I've written quite a bit on, on medieval mysticism. Um, and I was asked by a colleague to contribute a chapter to a book on angry groups, 
a couple of years ago and uh, ended up writing a chapter for that volume on uh, anger in the Bible. And uh, one wow. of the editors at the publisher at ABC Clio uh, contacted me and, and said they were looking for a book on the history of sin. Was it something I would be interested in doing? And at first, quite honestly, I said no. Um, I had a couple uh-huh. of other projects going, and uh, I wanted to. I was working on something on Saint Augustine at the time, and uh, it wasn't wasn't for a, a full year that I decided one day on a lark that I, I think I wanted to write this book, and it ended up being um, quite personal in many ways, which was a surprise to me. Interesting. You know what? I before you go elaborate on that. Uh, I just kind of wanted to explore a little bit when you talked about writing a chapter on anger in the Bible. Yeah. Wow, I've never heard that <laughs> concept before. So could you elaborate well, we, we, on that a little we, bit, the, kind of tell me a little bit more about that? Because that's, you know, sure. I'm kind of fascinated yeah, the, the, by that the idea. The volume, the book itself that came out is called Understanding Angry Groups. Um, and the two editors or two colleagues of mine at a previous institution that I taught at, uh, one who's in, in political science and the other one who's in psychology. And uh, the chapters that were contributed to the book sort of ran the gamut. A lot of it was political. Uh, and my uh, friend, colleague, came to me and said, you know, is that something you'd want to write, write a chapter for? And I said, yeah, but I don't know what I would write about. And uh, I thought about it for not very long, actually, and then came back to him and said, well, I could do anger in the Bible. And he said, that's a great idea. And so what it ended up being was an exploration of the idea of anger in the Old Testament as it differs from the idea of anger in the New Testament. And, of course, anger ends up being one of the seven deadly sins, so that becomes a chapter in my new book uh, in which it's quite clear that the, the most angry figure in the Old Testament is God himself. Interesting. Wow. And, and what about in the New Testament? In the New Testament, anger is treated quite differently. Uh, it it is, is more of a, of a sin for human beings than it is in the Old Testament. Um, there's a different attitude towards it once we make that shift. Uh, and I think a lot of that does have to do with the, the shift away from a, a more disciplinary God to a more merciful God in the, uh, the contrast between the Old and New Testaments. And that's what—that's how you distinguish the concept of God between the Old Testament is the shift from an, uh, a disciplinarian God to to uh, in essence, a more compassionate to a more merciful one. God. Yeah, in, in essence, I mean, the Old Testament God is is most characterized by rules and regulations. We think of the Ten Commandments, whereas the uh-huh. New Testament concept of God is much more concerned with forgiveness. Think about the Beatitudes. Uh huh. Interesting. And so that, as you say, that became a, uh, uh, what the uh, anger in the, in the Bible became a, ch- a chapter in your, in your book, Seven Deadly Sins? In the new book, it, it, it was elaborated then. Anger, the chapter on anger does deal quite a bit with the Bible and sort of huh? folds in that chapter that I'd written previously. Right. And, and what I'm curious about, when you, when you uh, wrote that chapter for the book on, on anger in the, in the Bible, what, did, what was involved in that process? Did you read through all of the Old Testament and New Testament? or what, How did you um, go about doing that? More or that? less. I mean, I, I teach the Bible as literature, 
So the Bible is a, is a text that I know well. Um, and it was a matter of going through not only looking at instances of anger in the biblical text, but then doing the background work on, well, what did anger mean in Jewish law, for example, um, and the attitudes towards anger in the Talmud um, and the other, other sort of peripheral texts that, that revolve around legalism in, in Judaic law in particular. And so that's, yeah, that's very fascinating. So um, now, we're, now we can go back to, to, the, to the new book and the Seventh Deadly Sin. So I was, sure. you know, talking a lot about, so you, you, you write the chapter and then a, a, a publisher approaches you about writing a book about Seven Deadly Sins. Did I get that right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Yeah, that's the way that it worked. And um, they wanted a a book on on the history of sin, I think is what I was asked to do. And I said, well, Uh that's uh, like a 13-volume work. (laughs) I don't have have the capacity to do that. So I, I decided to sort of focus in on the Seven Deadly Sins as a concept, not only looking at it, as a historical issue in the Middle Ages, but then looking at contemporary application today and how we've changed our attitudes about what sin is as time has progressed. So let's talk about that. I, I'm, um, I want to hear what you have to say about how it, how it shifted. I mean, I know in the, sure. in the, you talk about the shift with anger between you know, the, the, the evolution of the Old Testament and the New Testament. What about with, with sin? How did that evolve? Yeah, with with sin in general, I mean, it, it, it you know, most obviously it, it has shifted a great deal in, in the West from a purely religious theological concept to a much more secular one. Um, in fact, today when you talk to people about the phrase, quote-unquote, the seven deadly sins, everyone sort of looks at you with a, with a, a glimmer of understanding. But if you ask them what the seven uh, sins are, most people can't answer that question. I, I know. Uh, because it I isn't would, something that we clueless. really think about. I would yeah, it's kind of interesting. And, and some of them, the, the issue that I dealt with in the book and writing the book is some of them don't seem to us today to be sins. For example, the, the first of the seven deadly sins is pride. Um, and so one of the uh-huh. things that I address in the book is not just the ways in which pride is a sin historically, starting in the Genesis text with Adam and Eve, but then how it has sort of shifted. And today we talk about pride mostly as being a positive thing. We want people to be, quote, unquote, proud of themselves. And so, you know, how do we deal with that concept of it being a sin when our culture, our society has really shifted the meaning of the word to something that is much less negative? So that's interesting. So, like with pride, and you say that's the first deadly sin. It is that pride? almost always historically is the the first of the list. It's it's looked at as uh-huh. being the root of all the other sins, um, right. because mostly it is the sin that Adam and Eve commit in the Garden right. of Eden uh, right. by eating of the tree that, and wanting to be like God, and that that is that is what pride right. is wanting to be but that, that, better and, and you know, bigger than yourself. Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, uh, I was just thinking about, like, being a parent. You know, you, you, right. you said you could have proud of you. Or, you know, in my work as a life coach, you know, some of my clients say, hey, 
I'm proud of you. You were, you did that great. Right. And and it's it, and so, but but historically, that would be a sin for someone to think about. That well, it would be, and I think what's changed today is, and and this is one of the threads that runs throughout the entire book, is that really any of these seven sins in and of themselves, the activity is not necessarily sinful. It is sinful when it is taken to excess. So pride in excess becomes arrogance. That becomes a problem. Uh Uh, Love misplaced becomes lust. That's a problem. Uh Uh, It it Uh isn't an issue that, that people get angry. We all get angry. That's who we are as human beings. It's an excess that it becomes a problem. So the, the constant theme throughout, throughout the entire book is looking for a middle ground, trying to find what the Middle uh-huh. Ages, the medieval theologians called the middle way. Uh-huh. Interesting. So, so should we talk about another sin and how it changed? Sure. So what you're saying is with pride, and, and traditionally you're saying that wasn't a sin unless it was an excess? Well, it, 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 it was in the Middle Ages looked at as a sin in and of itself. Pride was viewed as being a bad thing. Uh, I think for what's happened to us in the modern world is that now, as you noted, you know, we say, you know, I'm proud of you, and that's a good thing, and we want people to be proud of themselves. I've been teaching right. for close to 30 years. I want my students to be proud of their work. But there is a right. point at which that pride can cross a line and become arrogance, and that's right. a, that's a thorny a thorny issue. Yeah, you know it's interesting in the work I do. I I encourage people to really think of themselves in in, in a much higher way because I tell people, you know what, very few people are going to really come across as tooting their horn too much. But right. I mean, it's usually the other way as people kind of you know, kind of belittle themselves and think less of themselves. Yeah. And I said, don't worry about going the other direction, <laughs> you know, especially yeah, if well, the person. But I would say 90% of the people, right, they don't have to worry about coming across as arrogant or anything like that. Right. Uh, because, because, well, because people, so much like of what's say, been, so much of what's been sewn into our Western ethos has been this, this idea of, of, you know, I mean, especially now, I mean, how many people have issues with low self-esteem, myself included, who, you know, have, yeah. have as you know, you know, sort of trouble tooting our own horn as it is. Um, and so, you know, there is something about being proud of what you do um, that, right. is, that is a good thing. Um, and right. so, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't belittle anybody for being proud of themselves. But certainly we all probably know people who have crossed that line where it becomes arrogance. Right. Like I say, I, I use I use figure ninety percent of, you know, people are probably the the low self esteem compared to the other people, and right. uh, you know, so there's there's room for that ninety percent to yes. shoot their horn <laughs> a little bit more, and I mean, sure. you know, some some people who are just you know fairly confident, they have to be a little more mindful of that. But so let's go ahead and 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 I. I Talk about another deadly. What's the second one okay. that they talk about? We've got, uh, we got pride, lust. Yep. Lust is, is the second deadly sin, and uh, uh-huh. lust is basically excessive desire. Um, and one of the things that I that I address is the way that we're dealing with that in our contemporary world, using, for example, 
the story that some of your listeners may remember about President Carter in the 70s. In 1976, he gave an interview with Playboy magazine where he said that he had lusted in his heart. And uh, he claims that his polling numbers went down by about 15, 20 percent after that interview as a result of that. You know, he never well, said he that did was a terrible about. interview. I won't blame him, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, he never said I mean, he did to me, to me, that was like, you know, was a positive thing. For somebody to have lust, yeah. let's say they had lust over somebody, but they didn't act on it. To me, right. Or, you know what I'm saying? They didn't. They didn't cross the bound. They respected the boundary, even though what they right. felt and that's inside. one of the things that to I me, that's a good that I address throughout the book is is the contrast yeah. between um, action and intention. Um, you know that, that in, intention to, to to sin is not necessarily in our modern world a, a negative thing. It's the action that we focus on, and that's right. really a shift because historically, especially in the Catholic Church, of course. If you intended to sin, if you thought about it, that was the sin. You had already sinned. Right. And that's kind of ridiculous because, you know, it's like saying don't think about pink elephants. Right, you know? right. Well, it's unrealistic for us as, as human beings, given our, our, our psychological makeup, as you say, to say right. don't think about this. Um, yeah. You know, I, I I, just, I, I, I one just, of the stories that I tell in the book is, is a, a funny story about a graduate school mentor that I had whose um, uncle was a monk, a Cistercian monk in, um, in Minnesota, a Benedictine monk, excuse me, in Minnesota. He said uh, that the boys in his class, they went to go visit his uncle at the monastery once, and um, they were talking to him, and the monk insisted that he had never seen himself naked. And the boys all said, well, how is that, how is that possible? Don't you, you, you bathe? You take a shower? And his response was, yes, but I don't look down there. So huh. intention and action. <laughs> uh -huh. To me, that's a little lame. <laughs> it, it is. <laughs> it's a little lame. Um, you know, I could just tell just from talking to you, you know, we've never met before, but I could just tell, you know, how you're, you come across it. You really had fun writing this book. I did. I write about I did. that? Yeah. Yes, yeah. and, and one of the reasons that I had fun is that I really used um, not only what's going on in the world today, but uh, I used a lot of my own experience as sort of an entryway into discussing these things. So, for example, in, in the final chapter on sloth, which we usually look at as being laziness, um, I begin with an anecdote about my father. I remember um, he was driving in our 1966 Chrysler in the uh, Catskill Mountains in the early 1970s, and a New York State trooper pulled him over for driving too slowly. And I never understood uh -huh. that. How could you do anything too slowly? How would that be bad? And so, you know, right. looking at, at, at these sins in that context is kind of interesting. Right. So what you do, you really kind of uh, take what these sins are and then apply it to contemporary society and and, and and look at how we think of it in a different way. What, what about this idea of sin? I mean, do you believe in this concept of sin? I do. I think that it, I think we have to change our def definition of what sin is. Um, and I, I, I really embrace in the book a definition that was suggested by the um, psychologist Carl Menninger in the uh, early 1970s. He wrote a, a book 
called Whatever Happened to Sin in 1973. And uh, it's kind of interesting because he wrote the book at a time when, of course, Vietnam was coming to an end. Uh, Watergate was really brewing. And uh, he made mention of the fact in the book that sin had been something that people had really stopped talking about. And he defined sin in his book as behavior that violates the moral code or the individual conscience or both. And so he really divorces it from any theological meaning. It becomes more about looking at a moral code or an individual conscience, which we all can have and hopefully do have, regardless of any kind of traditional religious upbringing or belief right. system. Um, it's, a, it, it's contrasting someone from, between being spiritual and being religious. So I, I include this definition of sin, about behavior relating to a moral code in spirituality and spiritual behavior and not necessarily religious behavior today. Uh-huh. So you know what I'm I'm curious about. Do you do you teach the you teach this class at the university? I teach the Bible as literature. I teach a lot of courses on um religious ideas and religious literature. Um uh-huh. I, I, I teach a course on heaven and hell. Um so I, I it, right. it, it, I come I, I sort of dance around the issue in a lot of ways, but it certainly becomes central um in right. in both of those courses. Right, wow. Sounds like a great course. I wish I was it's there. It's interesting, and it's interesting the way students react, um, given given the world that they're living in and, and what they see as sinful behavior and not. Uh, it's uh-huh. really interesting because it, for, for, for much of the current generation, the idea of sinful behavior related to moral behavior is really not an issue. They're more concerned with legal behavior than they are moral. And I have to really explain to them that not everything that is uh, moral is legal, and not everything that's legal is moral. And that really gets uh, And who, who is this, the crowd that, that, that you address this, this to? This is that, that, my 18, 19-year-old students. Uh-huh. So how do people uh, get a hold of your book? Uh, the book is available through Amazon. Um, it is called The Seven Deadly Sins, uh, How Sin Chain Influenced the West from the Middle Ages to the Modern Era. Uh, available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and I also have a website, which is davidasolomon.com. And I just want to note for your listeners that my Solomon is not the spelling of the king in the Bible; it is S-A-L-O-M-O-N, not S-O. So David A. Solomon, S-A-L-O-M-O-N. Wow, that's you know when I was putting your uh, information on the, um, on the on the website. For the show, I um, initially I, I spelled it wrong, <laughs> like you did not to do. And then I'm looking You're at it first. and I'm reading over the materials and I go, "What's wrong here? What isn't working?" And um, <laughs> yeah, so so let's let's go ahead then. In in um, what, what's your what's your like big picture takeaway from from this discussion? From from in other words, from the book, what's the I mean, what's your what's the overwhelming? I mean, it sounds like a, I, a fun discussion, yeah. intriguing. But what is the what is the overall message here that you're trying to convey? The the, the message ultimately um, regards uh, the slippery slope that we are um, mostly because of the way that we have embraced technology in our lives in so many different ways. 
um, that we are really sliding down a slippery slope that is making us more prone to what the, the, the medievals would call sinful behavior. Uh, and it's something that we need to consider and rein in that we are living in a world in which contemplation and reflection are really disappearing and that that is really in some ways taking away what makes us human. Mm-hmm. So to go back to really what it is to encourage people to to take time, I mean, this is my what I do all the time yeah. with, with people I work with and my writing is I talk about every day taking time for uh, meditation or prayer right. or whatever it is, some kind of daily practice. I mean, I've been doing this since... Well, and, 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 and to encourage people to be more thoughtful, full of thought. Um, whereas, you know, we live in such a data-driven society that uh, we're just being bombarded by data 24-7. It doesn't allow us any time to make that kind of retreat to reflect and think about things. Um, and whether you do that through prayer or meditation or even just uh, having, you know, what we stereotypically call alone time where you take a walk, um, that's right. something that, that's really important and we're, we're, we seem to be losing it. Yeah. So it, let me ask you a question um, that I ask all my guests. What what inspires you right now? What inspires me right now? That's a that's an excellent question. Um, I think what, ins- what inspires me personally are my, my students and my family. Um, what inspires me in general uh, is a hope for a, a better future. Um, I don't think that things are too great right now, and I'd, I'd like to see them turn around. Um, but I do see some hope in my students and, and, and their passion about learning and their passion for ideas, uh, and that really cheers me on. Mm-hmm. And, and what, are you, what are you most grateful for in your life right now? Oh, definitely for my family, my wife and my daughter, who's about just to turn uh-huh. 16 in a couple of weeks. Um, uh-huh. Grateful for that. Great, great, Grateful that I can have the kind of job that I have that permits me to do this kind of work where I can take a, a, a year and, and write a book uh, about uh-huh. something that is, uh, I think, pretty important. And, and, and one more question is, is um, what's your message to people out there that are listening today? What would you, what would you encourage them? To do or I would encourage them to to take even if it's and it's it sounds like it's sim- a similar message that you are, are are giving to your listeners as well to take some time every day even if it's just five minutes and and unplug and just regroup uh, mentally spiritually um, I, I I try to do meditation every night and, and sometimes it is just five minutes that I can get in. But that's, that's enough um, oftentimes uh, to, to take time to appreciate what is around you. Uh, I have on my, on my shelf at home here in my study, as well as in my office, a strand of braided sweetgrass, um, which I remember the smell of from when I was a, a young boy growing up and going to the Catskill Mountains for the summers. And I use that all the time as a, as a way to 
check out just for a moment to pick that sweet grass up and, and smell it. And it brings me right back to where I was when I was nine years grass? old. Sweet grass. Sweet grass. Yes. It's, it's, and, and the braided sweet grass, it's a practice of Native American, Native American cultures to braid sweet grass. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And it, 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 it's got a very distinctive smell. And if you've ever smelled it, um, it would, it would, you would, you would know, and it would remind you of, of a certain place, which is what it does for me. Mm-hmm. Well, so I think that taking, taking yeah. a moment. Yeah, definitely important to do. Um, yeah. And, 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 uh, especially to, you know, another is just to take, take time away from all your devices. I mean, I, I resisted it for so long and I've, you know, I, I use them more than I like to, but uh, but I'm, I. I can also <laughs> take a break and. Um, but any, anyway, I enjoy. It it is, and and but the 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 meditation when you do that, you got to just like uh, have have nothing around. You just you know a timer is what I use. And, uh, yes, but so, although it's thanks. interesting, isn't it? The number of meditation apps that are out there now. <laughs> I know, I know. It's ama- it is amazing. <laughs> it, it is it's kind of ironic. Yeah, all people, people are now. Oh, yeah, I got a great app. I got a great app. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and um, okay, so we're we're running out of time, and and we're out of just about out of time. So I want to thank okay. you for this delightful conversation, and it was um, it was enjoyable for me, and enlightening, That's and, for me. and I, I learned I, I learned a lot. And I know my listeners did, and so uh, thank you, David A. Salomon, professor. I appreciate you having me on. At Christopher Newport, is that what the Christopher Newport University? That in, is it. In Virginia, and uh, to all of you there listening, thanks for listening. And and remember, every week we have amazing people join us. And and in the in the meantime, until next week, journey on. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired to take the next step in your life. And if you haven't already, please take the time to visit my website at inspirepossibility.com and discover the various services and products we offer that could just very well change your life. <laughs>